Hey St. Clair, I'm Mark Standish and it's good to be with you again. This week I'm going to read Psalm 88 and share a few thoughts. So before we actually get to reading Psalm 88, I want to say a few words about Psalms in general. Hopefully going into the Psalm with an understanding of what a Psalm is and what it does will help shed some light on how to approach Psalm 88. So here it is. Simply put, psalms are a type of poetry. They're not stories or letters or prophecies, and they're not primarily concerned with teaching us specific things. Instead, poetry tries to describe an aspect of life. It doesn't really tell you what to do, because it's not a sermon or a parable. Psalms are cries to God that describe the psalmist's experience in an effort to be in a relationship with God. For us, psalms operate as companions in our journey through life, offering different ways to be in relationship with God through different experiences. In this way, the psalms serve as the lifeblood of the covenant. Well, all this is to say that the psalms do not operate like much of Scripture and therefore they resist being preached on like much of Scripture. For this reason, my sermon won't be a typical sermon. There are some takeaways at the end, but they're not my primary emphasis. Primarily, my aim is not to teach you a particular thing, but to show you what the psalmist feels and how that connects to us in our current moment. So here's Psalm 88, as translated by Robert Alter. A song, a psalm for the Korahites, for the lead player on the Mehalath, to sing out a maskil for Haman the Ezraite. Lord, God of my rescue, by day I cried out, by night in your presence. May my prayer come before you, incline my ear to my song, for I am sated with evils and my life reached the brink of Sheol. I was counted among those who go down to the pit. I became like a man without strength, among the dead cast away, like the slain, those who lie in the grave, whom you no more recall, and they are cut off by your hand. You put me in the nethermost pit, in darkness, in the depths. You, your wrath lay hard upon me, and all your breakers you inflicted. You distanced my friends from me. You made me disgusting to them. Imprisoned, I can't get out. My eyes ache from affliction. I called on you, Lord, every day. I stretched out to you my palms. Will your wonders be seen for the dead? Will the shades arise and acclaim you? Salah. Will your kindness be told in the grave, your faithfulness in perdition? Will your wonder be known in the darkness, your bounty in the land of oblivion? As for me, to you, Lord, I shouted, and in the morn my prayer would greet you. Why, Lord, do you abandon my life? Do you hide your face from me? Lowly am I, and near death from my youth. I have borne your terrors, 
I am fearful. Over me your rage has passed. Your horrors destroy me. They surround me like water all day long. They encircle me completely. You distanced lover and neighbor from me. My friends, utter darkness. A few years ago, I ended a relationship. In the aftermath, I realized that over the course of that relationship, somehow, I had become a shell of myself. I realized that I had lost my confidence. Now I avoided social situations, and when I found myself in one, I stayed quiet or found a way to remove myself from that situation. In my earlier life, I would just speak. It was easy. Now, I found myself thinking about all the ways in which what I was saying was unnecessary for the group. Maybe what I was going to say was unoriginal. Maybe it wasn't really funny. Maybe it was insensitive. By the time I had run through all these considerations, the moment was lost and the conversation had moved on. I just stayed quiet. Similarly, I lost my confidence in the classroom. When students challenged me, my first thought was to second-guess myself. All this added up to a sense that I knew I wasn't well. I wasn't myself. But when I thought about what to do about it, I was at a loss. I tried to fix myself, but I found that the more that introspective I became, the more I spiraled into unhelpful thought patterns. Things became more desperate, and I knew I needed to reach out for help. But when I thought about who to reach out to, I made excuses for why each person couldn't help. One person was too close to my ex. Another just had a baby. I felt uncomfortable reaching out to yet another person as I had lost touch with him and felt guilty about only doing so now that I needed help. My counselor was booked up for a week, and I thought that maybe I would be fine in a week's time and I would have to head into his office and apologize for taking up his time when other people needed him. All of these thoughts contributed to me falling deeper and deeper into self-loathing. I was cut off and deprived of perspectives that affirmed my value and offered a way out. When I read Psalm 88, I feel like the psalmist is having these exact thoughts. Though a typical reading of the psalm doesn't directly bring up these thoughts, I think that reading isn't exactly complete. A typical reading argues that Psalm 88 is primarily a dispute between the psalmist and God. The psalmist believes that God hasn't held up his end of the covenantal bar bargain. When the psalmist needs God most, when he cries out to God, God isn't there. While this dispute is obviously present in Psalm 88, I have a sense that there's something else going on. Let's have a look at verse 3. The NRSV translates it as, My soul is full of troubles. Which gives us a little bit of the sense that God has troubled the psalmist. But Alter's translation adds another element to this verse. He translates it as, I am sated with evils. In Alter's translation, the psalmist is troubled, yes. But those troubles 
aren't necessarily directed to the psalmist's situation, to the psalmist's relationships with others or to God. No, the psalmist's troubles are directed at himself, at who he has become. It's as if he's asking, how have I become this way? How is it that the things that satisfy me, the things that I desire, are what I know to be evil? Given the rest of the psalm, the psalmist definitely blames God. But he blames God because he doesn't understand how someone whom God created could become evil. Ultimately, he is God's creation and he can't even stand to look at himself. How can this be so? How can he be so? Here, it's important to remind ourselves that Psalm 88 is a poem, which provides a snapshot into a feeling or experience that the poem wishes to recount. However, this recounting is from the perspective of the poet in that moment. That means that the psalmist isn't trying to provide an accurate account of what is actually happening. So when the psalmist says that his friends, neighbors, and lover see him as disgusting, they may not actually see him that way. Just like when I made excuses for my friends as to why they couldn't help me. Those excuses were just that. Excuses. Now, when I reflect back on that season in my life, I know that my counselor wouldn't have been disappointed in me for wasting his time. Likewise, my friend who was a new parent would have gladly figured out a way to talk to me in my dire state, even if that involved inconvenience. In a similar way, we can ask the question, is the psalmist actually as evil as he thinks? Probably not. But in his current frame of mind, he is obsessed with his evil actions, and that warps his vision. In these ways, the psalmist in Psalm 88 is an unreliable narrator whose psychological state has warped his vision. So let's repeat my version of the psalmist's question. How did he get here? I think the psalm provides us some clues. Look at the end of verse 4. The psalmist believes that he is among the dead, cast away. Here we get the sense that the psalmist is isolated. And then look at the end of verse 5. The psalmist writes that he is cut off by God's hand, or in the NRSV, cut off from God's hand. Both emphases taken together capture the psalmist's expression. The psalmist feels cut off by God and from God. However, as we soon find out, the psalmist feels isolated from more than just God. In verse 9, the psalmist indicts God, writing, You distanced my friends from me. You made me disgusting to them. So, not only is the psalmist cut off from God, but he is also cut off from his friends. And the psalm ends on this note. The psalmist writes, You distanced lover and neighbor from me, my friends, utter darkness. In this way, when we get to the end of the psalm, the psalmist is isolated from God, from neighbor, and from his friends. 
to the point that his friends are darkness. It's as if he can't even see them. They are unseen and inaccessible. Notice the psalmist's logic here. He begins cut off from God. Then he's cut off from his friends. And then in the end, we see that the psalmist is cut off from himself. It's a spiral. He sinks deeper and deeper into his thought pattern as the psalm progresses. Recall my version of the psalmist's question, how did he get here? On the psalm's face, it's clear that the psalmist is isolated because he is disgusting. But what if the inverse is true? What if the psalmist views himself as disgusting precisely because he is isolated? The psalmist's spiraling thought pattern lends itself to this reading. As he becomes further isolated, his despair becomes more intense, to the point that at the end, darkness has taken over. Similarly, once he is isolated from God, his friends, his neighbor, and his lover, the only person he has left is himself. And his self is only satisfied by the dark things of this world. Thus, darkness is all he has left. This makes sense of verse 13 too, where the psalmist writes, Will your wonder be known in the darkness? It's as if he's saying, look at me. I am utter darkness. How can I be made in your image? How can anyone look at me and think of God's wonder? So then again, how did he get here? It starts and ends with isolation. Isolation leads him down the path to viewing himself as disgusting and to the perspective that he is disgusting to God and neighbor. Psalm 88 is unique in the Psalms, as it's the only lament that doesn't have a resolution. It's not like Psalm 38, in which the psalmist concludes that God will answer, as he always does. Nor is it like Psalm 137, in which the psalmist turns from his lament to his desire for the destruction of Israel's enemies. Nope. Psalm 88 just ends. It's just darkness. There is no remedy proposed. This might lead us to think that despair is the end of the story. And at this point, it's important to remember, a psalm is a snapshot. Just because the psalm ends in despair doesn't mean that the psalmist ended in despair. And it definitely doesn't mean that if Psalm 88 rings true for you, that you have to remain in despair too. Recall the story that I began with. I felt like I was too much of a burden to reach out to those around me. But that's not the end of my story. Eventually, I felt like I was losing control. And eventually, I got so desperate that the excuses that I made weren't enough to stop me from reaching out. I was scared of myself. I had to reach out. I needed my friends. So I met with Rob, and we sat down to have tea in his kitchen, and I wept. I explained that I couldn't hold myself up, that I was spinning out of control. He told me that I didn't have to hold myself up. He told me that he would hold me up. He told me that he missed me. 
and that he was happy that I reached out. And as many of us know from experience, voicing those feelings to someone we can trust can bring freedom. I found the freedom to start making steps to get out of the isolation that encircled me. I set an appointment with my counselor. I spoke to others. I inserted myself into social situations. And guess what? It turns out I wasn't the burden that I had convinced myself that I was. So what can we take away from Psalm 88? First, the despair that the psalmist expresses is legitimate and has a place within the life of faith. This is evident in the simple fact that Psalm 88 is in the Bible. As Western evangelicals, we have a tendency to either shy away from talking about experiences that resemble Psalm 88, or to assert that these experiences are the product of personal weakness. And if we just had enough faith, they would go away, or they'd never come around. However, Psalm 88 is in the Bible and there's no resolution to it. It's not in the Bible as a story of how a tough situation was overcome by faith. It's in there as a picture of despair. Full stop. And if it's in the Bible, then chances are it's a real part of our lives. When we start to realize that Psalm 88-like experiences are part of the faithful life, then we can start to wrestle with them instead of continually sweeping them under the rug as we are wont to do. The other side of this takeaway is that Psalm 88 is only one psalm. It's not meant to be a way of life. Sometimes we have a tendency to wallow in despair, to think that despair is more authentic than happiness. But when we remember that psalms are snapshots, we also remember that Psalm 88 is only one snapshot of 150. In this way, we may find ourselves in a season of despair, but that doesn't mean that we should stay in that season. Second, in verse 4, the psalmist writes, I became like a man without strength. Though the NRSV translates this verse as, I am like those who have no strength, the Hebrew implies that what the psalmist loses is his machismo, his manliness, his masculinity. In this way, he loses his ability to be independent, to be in control, and to have it together. Such a masculine desire prevented me from seeking counseling in the first place. I saw asking for help as shameful, as if when I asked for help, it would represent some defect in my character. So I put it off and my mental health worsened. But this masculinity is contrary to Jesus' teachings. Think of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Or think about the grace that Jesus offers us. It's not about what we can do. It's not about doing it ourselves. We have to rely on him. We're not able to get everything under control. And it's not even something that we should desire. We have to let ourselves be held up in the body of Christ, like I was held up by Rob. And this gets at an important point. 
Sometimes when we feel like God is silent, we ignore the help that the people around us are trying to give. Remember, they are the body of Christ. God might heal you through those people. He might heal you through a counselor, through a friend, through a neighbor, through a pastor. And yeah, it might be in an official capacity, just like a counselor. But God works in official capacities, just like he works in unofficial ones. Just like he could help you through your friend, he could also help you and heal you through a counselor. In all, we need to be vulnerable. We need to reach out and just ask. Let go of that need to be independent. Forget about those voices that tell you that your relationship with God is just between you and God. We're all in it with you. Plus, at St. Clair in particular, there are so many people with resources for dealing with mental health. Take advantage of those opportunities. See where vulnerability and trust lead you. Third, in the beginning of verse 5, the psalmist writes that he is among the dead cast away. The Hebrew word for the place that this verse refers to is also used in 2 Kings 5. There, it refers to the place where lepers are quarantined. In our current moment, we know quarantine well. COVID has forced us to be afraid of each other, to avoid physical intimacy, and to be alone behind a window. In our current moment, we are particularly vulnerable to the isolation that starts the psalmist's downward spiral. And now, there are just more reasons, some very legitimate, for putting off asking for help. This fact bears two calls. First, if you are struggling, know that there are still ways to find help. Friends may not see you as much and may not be able to tell that you are struggling, but you can still reach out. Likewise, even though I'm not ideal, there are counseling and mental health services available that don't involve meeting in person. If you need them, take them. Second, the rest of us need to realize the vulnerable position that our brothers and sisters are in. Extra effort is required in going out of our way to check in on those around us. It's all too easy to focus on our own lives right now when everything else is out of mind. We must resist this. We may be in the midst of a global pandemic, but that does not mean that we are no longer the hands and feet of Jesus. Finally, it's important to remember that Jesus wants to heal you. Remember, he put himself at risk to heal the leper. And though we may be isolated, he wants to break through that isolation and heal us. And the hands that he will use to reach out and heal the sick in body and spirit are our hands, the hands of his children. Most of the time, this healing is the work of small miracles. 
of a timely check-in, of a meaningful conversation. Ultimately, these miracles shine through most when in a cold world, a step out in vulnerability is somehow greeted with an embrace instead of ridicule. So that is my prayer for you. That God gives you the strength to expose your weakness. And that when you do, you are met by the embrace of your creator where you least expect.